A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Eric Glass. Back in the winter of 2022, in the days and weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine, there's one thing that most Ukrainians and most Russians had in common. They both insisted that war was impossible. War was unbelievable. And one reason it was unbelievable is that many families, possibly most families on either side of the border, have family members in the other country. Many Russians have some Ukrainian roots. Many Ukrainians have spent time living in Russia. Even President Zelensky, like many Ukrainians, grew up speaking Russian. He had a career in Russia, starred in Russian movies, performed comedy for Russian audiences. Even Putin's seen him perform. Called him a good actor years ago. So when Russians did start the war, it wasn't just on the battlefield or in the airspace over Ukrainian cities. It was within families. This is something I had no idea about, the way a conflict like this might take the normal disagreements between people and blow them up. When you think about it, like, of course, right? It was the writer Masha Gessen who explained this to me. Masha was born in Moscow, moved to the United States as a teenager with their family, then moved back to Russia as an adult to work as a journalist. They've written several books, now currently a staff writer at The New Yorker. And what Masha's put together today is a very unusual story where they try to capture what this is like by looking at one family and the fights they get into related to the war. So... What you're about to hear is one family and eight fights. Here's Masha. In normal times, we keep the peace in families by letting things go, by accommodating, by forgetting things, or pretending not to notice things. But when war starts, even the quietest, most conflict-avoidant people start fighting. Just before the war began, on February 21st, 2022, two people sat at a long dining table in a Moscow apartment. These are my friends Nadia and Karen. They're at the center of this constellation of people I'm gonna tell you about. I've known Nadia the longest, since she was a college student in Moscow about 25 years ago. She was tall, blonde, butch, very cool. She still is. Soon after graduating in 2003, she moved to Kyiv. And there's Karen, a gay man, a friend I've known through many relationships, Twelve years ago, Karen and Nadia had a baby together. They lived in different countries, but it didn't seem like a big deal. Karen was in Moscow, Nadia in Ukraine, and Kyiv. So their son, Luca, was growing up in Kyiv, but regularly visited his dad in Moscow. And on this night, all three of them were in Karen's apartment in Moscow. Luca had gone to bed. The adults were watching a speech by Vladimir Putin. Putin was declaring war. So Karen and Nadia had a fight. Fight number one. Where does Luca go? Even before Putin's speech, Nadia was ready. She didn't think the war would happen but she'd made a plan for Luca if war broke out. A plan she hadn't told Karen about, until now. By that time, I already knew that we're not going back to Ukraine. We already had tickets to Berlin. And who said what? What was the argument? Well, before he was saying nothing's going to happen, and you exaggerating and things like this. But then he was like, okay, 
maybe something's going to happen in Ukraine. But you definitely shouldn't, you know, um, take kid away to some other country. I was like, if there's going to be a war, it is safer uh, to stay in Moscow. This is Karen. Because nobody's going to attack Moscow. Uh, I live 10 minutes walk from Kremlin. <laughs> I can't imagine uh, the war can come into town. He was saying, no, I want him to stay in Moscow. It's the safest place in the world. I don't want him to go to Berlin. And we actually, we didn't succeed too much in persuading him. And she didn't push too hard because that wasn't her way. I don't know. I just hate fighting. I just hate when it gets ugly. Whenever I even sense that this might be the situation, I would just, you know, go one over the direction. It would never actually get too far as to have a fight with someone. And I think I'm so used to this. It has been for years like this. So we just said we're going to go there for two weeks. We, as a Nadia, Luca, and Nadia's girlfriend, Sophie. And only on two weeks he agreed. And everybody was like, yeah, two weeks, of course. Right. But then I called Sophie anyway and I said, take everything, <laughs> including the summer clothes. Including the summer clothes. Now Sophie flies to Berlin with as much stuff as she can carry on a plane. Nadia and Luca meet her there. Am I understanding this correctly, that you're like talking him into two weeks because you're not going to have a big fight with him? Yeah, but it's just the story of our relationship. We're just avoiding the conflicts all the time. Well, she is. This is how she is with everyone. So, Nadia and Luca leave, Karen stays, and Russia invades Ukraine. Karen is going to protest, but he's lost, crying every day. After a few days, he goes to a goodbye party at a friend's apartment. And there, there were a lot of our uh, common friends, I don't know, 15 people. And everybody were discussing tickets, when and where uh, everybody's going. I can tell you when this was, because I was there. March 4th. And it's true that this was all our friends were talking about. There were rumors that Russia would close the border, impose martial law, conscript all the men, and just a general sense that she had to get out now, or it will be too late. At the party, Karen started to get upset, like, wait, you were all just going to leave me here? And that was the moment that I realized that if everybody is leaving, then I'm going to do it. Uh, as well. So Karen and his boyfriend buy tickets. To give you a sense of just how difficult it was to get out by then, they end up flying to Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia. From there, after a few days, they fly to Seoul, South Korea, then to Dubai, then to Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, where they stay for a bit. Fight number two. Who is Russian and who is Ukrainian? To understand the roots of this next fight, we have to go back a long time, to New Year's Eve 2010, when Karen and Nadia met. Uh, my friend Vera, she introduced me to Nadia, saying, like, this is Karen, and he wants to have a child. 
and this is Nadia and she wants it too. So please invite me when everything is done and uh, you're going to baptize your kid and I'll be his or her godmother. <laughs> and that was it. And we were like, okay, let's talk. And we, several times we talked about it uh, and we decided, yes, let's do it. They were 31 and 28. They were both queer. They were both Buddhists. So they had that in common. Other than that, they didn't discuss any of the big issues of how to raise a child. What school he would go to, what languages he would speak, how they would explain the world to him. Nadia knew she wanted to raise him in Ukraine. She'd moved there from Moscow years before this. Karen wanted to stay in Moscow, but he'd visit. They weren't exactly friends. They went straight to being co-parents. They figured they'd work it out. A few years later, it was time to choose a school for Luca. Nadia had to make a commitment to the next 10 years or so of her son's schooling and the language in which he was going to study. At the time, Kiev had schools with instruction in Ukrainian, Russian, English, German, French. Nadia was struggling to make a choice. But Karen had a definite opinion. Of course, I uh, was... Uh, hoping that he will study Russian and he, he will read and write in Russian. I mean, all his family, including his Ukrainian part of the family, uh, speaks only Russian. And he's thinking uh, in Russian. He never reads in, in Ukrainian. So what's the point to try to... Like, artificially implement the language that he doesn't use and will not use when he grows up. Karan's kind of a funny one to be championing Russian culture. He grew up an outsider. His heritage is Armenian, Jewish, Greek, and yes, I'm Russian. He has dark curly hair, a trimmed beard, a wide chiseled face, and a long prominent nose. He's beautiful. He also doesn't look Russian at all. It's not easy to grow up in Russia when you don't look ethnically Russian. I know. I grew up in Russia looking un-Russian, and I get teased, chased, and beaten up a lot. Karen's name marks him as an Armenian. He had to fight for the right to be Russian. Nadia, on the other hand, with her blonde hair and blue-gray eyes, Growing up in Moscow, she certainly never had to defend her right to be there. She moved to Kiev as a kind of experiment and found that she loved it there. It became her home. Karen and a lot of Nadia's friends, though, kept assuming she was in Ukraine temporarily. On this particular night, Karen was a little drunk. And that's when we started this fight. It was, we started over schools, and then it went to that Ukrainian culture is not a culture and uh, the language is not language and all that. And he went on and on. And at first I was shocked. And so he was like, he said many things. And then I was like, what, what, what do I supposed to do? Because I can't fight with him. I don't, because I have to keep good relationship because he's Luca's father. So I was like, okay, please don't say these things because we Ukrainians. He was like, no, you're not Ukrainians. You're Russians, you're from Moscow <laughs> and he's Russian. And I was like, okay. Yeah, of course I was biased, and I'm still biased. Um, but biased how? Biased uh, toward Russian heritage. This is an important part of my identity. And 
I was convinced that uh, this is an important part of his identity also. In fact, Karan had always hoped that Nadia would move back to Moscow. Nadia had zero intention of doing that. The thing is, I always hated the idea that he has to go to Moscow, even over the vacation. And I never liked the influence it was on him. Not that she said this to Karen. Why start a fight? Because all the time Luca was going to Russia for one month a year, his father was like insistently feeding him, like, you're Russian, you're not Ukrainian, you've got nothing to do with Ukraine. There's no such thing as Ukrainian culture. The Ukrainian language is not good. And there's this tremendous Russian culture, you should heading towards that. And then Luca would be coming back and saying, you know, I don't like to attend some Ukrainian holidays or where Vyshevanka and why would you do that? A Vyshevanka is a traditional Ukrainian embroidered shirt. Karan told me he didn't have anything against Ukrainian tradition in particular. We all know that uh, traditional costumes are just literally bad taste for like everybody. No matter if this is Vyshevanka or traditional Russian costume, we look down to that in general because it's silly, because it has something to do with the nationalism. We all hate it, always. Like, at least we thought we hated. There's a big difference between Russian and Ukrainian national costumes. The Vyshevanka, long before the war, was a symbol of the renaissance of Ukrainian culture and identity after the fall of the Soviet Union. Ukraine was a former colony of Russia, Karen, like most Russians, was oblivious to this. This is uh, not about, like, uh, Russia or Ukraine. This is about, like, sense of style. Kind of. To Nadia, it was about Karen's attitudes toward all things Ukrainian. He thought Kiev was a backwater. I hate to mention it, but uh, he was visiting museums or theaters or concerts only when I was uh, coming to Kiev and I took him to like same two or three museums and not to mention theaters. There are almost none in Kiev. How much theater and, and uh, museums did you get when you were a kid? <sighs> Unfortunately, not uh, too much, not too many because I was born and raised in uh, Siberia, in Irkutsk. And this is not like a big cultural center. Every parent wants to give their children what they didn't have growing up. Nadia, unlike Karen, grew up in the center of Moscow, in the very heart of the empire, in a privileged family. Karen couldn't believe she was willing to give up what he had so longed for as a kid. Nadia, for her part, wanted to avoid conflict. So in the end, Luca didn't go to a Ukrainian school or a Russian school. He enrolled in a German school in Kiev. When the war started, all those things that Luca had heard his father say, that he and his mother are really Russian, these ideas hit Luca hard. His father's country was bombing his motherland. Luca was crying and saying, it's my fault. I'm Russia. So I called his father and I said, 
Look what have you done? Luca now thinks that it's his fault because he is Russian. He felt that he's uh, half this and half that, and now uh, there is huge uh, inner conflict inside of him because, like, to him, uh, to his kid's mind, uh, there was like one half of him is attacking uh, the other half of himself. Talking to Luca didn't help much. Maybe he could be convinced that the war wasn't his fault. But he was still stuck with this problem of being both Ukrainian and Russian. The war was tearing him apart. It maybe didn't help that he and his moms were still in the move. They finally landed in Lisbon. I was like thinking maybe, suggesting maybe you think you're going to be Portuguese since we live in Portugal. And he was like, no, 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 I'm German. I'm definitely German. And I was like, why? And then the psychologist explained to me that at this age, they just pick the safest environment. Luca had gone to German school in Kiev. He was going to start attending a German school in Lisbon. Choosing Germany was a way to avoid choosing Ukraine or choosing Russia. A way to avoid choosing between his parents. I think Germany felt neutral. Fights number three and number four. Crimea and the globe. A few years back, Karan surprised Nadia. For his part of summer vacation, he suggested taking Luca to Crimea. Crimea had been under Russian occupation for several years. Once upon a time, it had been a vacation destination for both Russians and Ukrainians. But after the occupation, Crimea was off limits for Ukrainians. And uh, I was like, no, 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 we, we don't go to Crimea. And uh, they were like, Oh, say no! Come on, uh, because uh, the whole family of his father used to spend summer in Crimea, so they will continue doing that. And they were calling us and saying, "Can Luca come so the, our ki- the kids can spend time together?" And I was like, "Yeah, I don't mind, but we don't go to Crimea, we Ukrainians, because it's not our land, and there's the whole thing about it." Imagine you live in a house, and one day someone comes in with a gun and just takes over the second floor, and it wasn't a bunch of empty rooms. Your cousin was living there. Now your cousin isn't allowed to talk to you. And suddenly your friend goes, hey, let's go visit the guy who's living on the second floor of your house. I've always liked the view from there. I never shared this point of view that uh, you cannot uh, visit annexed territories. Well, I guess for Ukrainians, it's completely different. Uh, For them, Uh, If you go there, it means that you support the idea that Crimea is part of Russia or that was legal. You really couldn't see what the big deal was. They'd go there, support the local economy. After all, the people of Crimea weren't to blame for being occupied. There's no way I can explain what I feel. So the only way I could say, okay, doesn't matter what I feel, probably you're right. But... And on the 1st of September, the kid would have to go to Ukrainian school. And then when they ask him how he spent the summer, and if he says he goes to Crimea, he's going to be in big trouble. That worked. The Crimean vacation was averted. But then came the globe. When Russia occupied Crimea, it printed up new maps and made new globes that labeled Crimea as part of Russia. And as Nazi recalls, Karen and his boyfriend were coming for a visit and bringing a globe as a present for Luca. And on the plane, 
they realized that this is a Russian globe. It showed Crimea as a part of Russia. This would be a problem when they'd land in Ukraine and have to go through customs. And they got, they got really scared that the, somebody would decide to check it and they'll be in a big trouble. They'll be stopped and not allowed to enter the Ukraine because they brought the globe with the Crimea being marked as part of Russia. So they were really scared, but, it's, but they couldn't throw it away because it's a big thing to get rid of. It's really obvious. And, you know, <laughs> in the toilet. It's, it's not even many places where you can leave it. So they kind of had this poker face and they crossed the customs and nobody even checked. They left the airport, they took a taxi to Niza's house, they gave the globe to Luca, and they told the story of how they had this realization on the plane and were stuck with the globe. And they, it was like the biggest joke. They would keep telling it to everyone. It was like, ha, ha, how funny. Imagine how stupid. And I was like stuck in, with this thing in my house. The globe was Lucas. But it was Nadia who felt stuck with it. I, I don't want to offend your father's feelings. It's really nice. That it's, it, and it's your present. And I know if I throw it away, it would be a huge scandal. So I was kind of saying, I'm really, really sorry. And I totally understand. But again... It might be some other people visiting, other Ukrainian people visiting my house and get offended. So I'm really sorry, but I'm getting rid of this globe. This how it always been like this. I couldn't really say, what a fucking stupid idea. Why the hell you brought this globe, you know, to my house, give it to your son. It was, yeah, I always have to be the long way after other people might get offended. You know how people remember important events in completely different ways? In Karen's version of the story, there was no globe on the airplane. No fretting about customs. But there was a globe. Until there wasn't. It's not there when I visited him next time in Kiev. And I was like, and where is your globe? And he was like, well, you know, there is a tiny mistake on that globe. So mama uh, hided it from me. <laughs> And I realized what kind of mistake. And, but I never, I can't recall that there was uh, any fight about it. Did she tell you that we had fight about the globe? No, no. She said that um, she said that she felt compelled to tell you that she had to get it out of the house because Ukrainian friends would see it. Ah, no. So nobody saw it. There was no problem. <laughs> Right. And did did Luca actually say tiny mistake? Yes, that was. <laughs> it was so uh, touchy, you know, <laughs> so sweet of him. He, he was shy and was like, "Well, you know, uh, there was a tiny mistake under the globe." So <laughs> I never told him like, "What a what a hell!" You know, I didn't make any drama of it. And and you didn't ask Nadia about it either. Mm-mm. Of course not. It was clear that that's a problem. Fight number five, Bucha. When the full-scale invasion began, it began with the unimaginable. Almost immediately, Russian tanks were right outside of Kiev. Russian troops occupied the western suburbs. Ukrainians fighting to keep them out of the city blew up the bridge that connected the western suburbs to Kiev. And that bridge? It's just a short walk from Nadia's house. 
Their town borders Bucha, a place that's become synonymous with Russian war crimes. Nadia, her girlfriend Sophie, and Luca were watching the invasion from a distance, and they were sick with worry. Because that house was not empty. Nadia's father and Sophie's mother were there, along with two pugs and several cats. Were they safe? Were they alive? Nadia posted on Facebook, We haven't heard from our parents in four days. I don't know how they're doing for food and water. They had a bit in reserve. I think they're probably afraid to fire up the stove. Is there anyone in the area who could show them a safe way out? Nadia's father and Sophie's mother were the last people remaining in their gated community. They hung blankets over the windows. They had no electricity. And yes, they were scared. And here's the thing their daughters could not imagine. They were in love. They'd gotten together. They lived by candlelight. They made a fire in the fireplace and cooked shish kebab. When the shelling was heavy, they lay in bed holding each other and felt the house rock back and forth. Finally, Niza got a hold of some Ukrainian soldiers in the area who told her there was a way out and they'd help. The soldiers came to the house and told Niza's father, let's call him Alex. He had half an hour to pack. Oh, that's funny. I packed that I thought was particularly important. I took a coffee maker, a supply of coffee that I thought would last for six months. Half a suitcase of coffee. Then, for some reason, I decided I should bring wine. And so I packed a suitcase of wine. And then I decided to take some things that I thought would dear to Nadia. For some reason, I took some of her Buddhist figurines. It was a Buddha statue from Ikea. Wait, a Buddha statue from Ikea? Yeah, 10-year-old Buddha statue. Uh, because it was standing in the kitchen and uh, like in the middle of everything. And my father thought it's somehow valuable. They also brought the two pugs. They left the cats behind with lots of food. They drove into Kiev where they were joined by another couple and another pug. By this time, the car was so tightly packed with stuff on top of people and pugs on top of stuff the doors could only be closed from the outside. And uh, they started driving, and uh, it was really difficult with all these checkpoints. Everybody was, like, traumatized, obviously. And this Ophelia, the one pug, she, she started to have a heat or whatever, yeah? So they started to mate all the way. They were, like, driving not sleeping, with all these checkpoints, and there's these two dogs just fucking on the, on everyone because they didn't have a space. So it was happening on everyone. And whenever they were trying to pull them apart, they were biting. Alex dropped off Lena and the other couple and the male pug in western Ukraine and continued on to Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia, where he picked up Nadia for the drive through the rest of Europe. So it was my father and two dogs in a really smelly and dirty car, full of some weird stuff he grabbed from the house when he had half an hour. Nadia disposed of some of the junk, including the giant Ikea Buddha, almost as soon as she got in the car. Then they kept driving, 
and um, so we were driving and driving and uh, at some point the news came that about Bucha. We started getting the pictures. Ukrainian troops had just entered Bucha after a month of Russian occupation. And what they saw was bodies. Bodies lying across sidewalks, bodies in the middle of the street, bodies with their hands tied behind their backs, demolished and burnt out houses, the charred remains of tanks, and more bodies of ordinary residents of Bucha who had been executed. These were pictures of streets Nadia and her father knew intimately. There was a park in Bucha where Nadia used to take Luca. So Nadia was in the passenger seat, looking at her phone and seeing photos of the bodies. Then she and her father switched. She took the wheel. So uh, nice. So I kind of mentioned this Bucha thing, and I said, do you know what happened in Bucha? He was like, no. So I told him, and uh, he was really surprised, and he was like, oh my God, really? And I was like, I, I told them all I knew, and he was trying to figure it out in his head, and then he was like, no, I can't believe in this. This must be, you know, you have to check this information, it can't be true. And I was like, no, 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 I already already checked it. It, it was everywhere this morning, and the sources are reliable. And he was like, no, 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 it can't be. And he started giving me this lecture on Ukrainian propaganda. Alex is Russian. He moved to Ukraine with Nadia 20 years ago. They built a house together and he loved it. Now he was saying, who knows if what you're reading is true or if it's true, is it the only truth? And anyway, things are never so black and white. And, and I was like, wait, 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 wait. Let's not switch to, let's not discuss Ukraine propaganda. I'm telling you about the situation that happened in Bucha, which I consider my hometown. By suggesting that maybe things aren't so clear, so black and white, so knowable, Alex was in fact doing what Russian propaganda does. Its main message is that no one really knows what happened. If you weren't there, you can't judge. Everyone has a vested interest in everything. No one is a reliable source. It provides people with a myriad ways to avoid the truth and no way to know it. But of course, Alex was there. He had just been there. I know Bucha inside out, and I've seen what kind of destruction was there. It was horrible. I know of some absolutely awful things. When soldiers would come to people's house, when they turn all over the houses, looking for weapons, looking for terrorists. And I even know of a friend of a friend who went to get a bread, and while he was getting bread, he was shot and killed. And I know all of this. I'm well aware of it. But the thing is, when people talk about mass burials, about people shot with their hands tied behind their back, you know, as a scientist, I believe in facts. But this event, you know, I just haven't seen this for myself. It's not that I can't believe in it. I just refuse to believe it. I refuse to believe that Russian soldier came and took civilians, that he tied their hands, took them all out, and then shot them all. I mean, that's just genocide to take people and tie their hands and shoot them. Well, I just psychologically refuse to believe in that. So this was happening while they were driving through Spain. 
Nigel behind the wheel, reeling from the photos from Butcher that she had just seen, and Alex in the passenger seat, arguing his way out of believing that the atrocities actually happened. And the thing is, Nigel and her father are very close. They moved to Ukraine 20 years ago together because Alex wanted to try living there. They built that house together. They lived together. And she had just lived through the hell of not knowing if he was alive or dead. And now these pictures from Bucha, they showed how close the danger had been and just how awful. And this was the moment Alex chose to use the language of Russian propaganda and say maybe things were not so black and white. And I remember because we were driving through Spain and it was heavy rain. And then, then I said, please stop. Because if you were my father... If you weren't my father. I would get you out of the car here, even though it's rain. And I said, please stop and let's never, ever have this type of conversation again. And it was the silent for a minute. And then she said, blood is not water. That's Russian for blood is thicker than water. He was trying to, you know, ease this situation. But that's when I understood that it's serious between us, this gap. They kept driving in silence. Masha Gessen. Coming up, after sending bombs and troops near to Nadia's house outside Kiev, Russia sends her a bill. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, Eight Fights. If you're just tuning in, Masha Gessen is telling the story of one of the many families who have people on both sides of the border between Russia and Ukraine and the family fights they've gotten into since the Russian invasion. So far, Masha's friend Nadia has fought with her kid's dad, with her own father. Masha picks up where we left off. Fight number six, about giving money to the Russian government. By spring of last year, a couple of months into the war, something changed in Nadia. Gone was the person who avoided fights. It was almost as if she wanted confrontation. And it so happened that at this time, notices from the Russian authorities started arriving at Nadia's mother's apartment in Moscow, indicating that Nadia needed to pay a fine. This was a fine she'd already paid. She had a receipt. But the Russian state, which was bombing Ukraine, wanted more of Nadia's money. And then I've got a letter that I have to pay it again to the Ministry of um, Internal Affairs or something. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not definitely paying no money to these guys in my life. How much money are we talking about? God, some pathetic sum, probably about 10,000 rubles, which I don't know how, even how much money is that. I mean, it's not much. It's under $100, I think. It's, it's definitely under $100. Nadia wanted her mother to do something about it. Nadia demanded that she go to the tax office and appeal the fine. She wanted her 70-year-old, five-foot-tall mother to go up against the Russian bureaucracy over less than $100. And she wouldn't let it go. She kept calling. Her mother understood why Nadia was upset. She opposes the war, too. But she's Russian. And she looked at this fine the way a Moscovite does. She thought Nadia should forget about it. 
Ну, я же здесь живу, все, все мои налоги, все деньги, они так и так идут. На... <laughs> так что для меня это не проблема. She's saying, I mean, I live here. All my taxes, all my money already goes to them anyway. So it's not a big deal for me. Nazia knows that her mother opposes the war. But that's just the thing that's driving her crazy, that her mother is so resigned. And I said that, you know, this the whole thing about you Russians, that you just can't be bothered. And you pay money to this government because you can't be bothered not to pay. And this is why the whole thing is happening. Fight number seven, the Nice showdown. Five months into the war, Karen took Luca on vacation to Nice, to the beach. I can sort of imagine how Karen was feeling. He spent five months in shock and in a scramble, emigrating, reorienting his professional life. And now here he was on vacation in France. The buildings in Nice are white, the sea and the sky are blue, and even the ships also white, look like they're there to complete the postcard view. Nice is a place a lot of people from the Russian Empire had gone to about a hundred years earlier, fleeing the revolution and civil war. Karen must have imagined that they experienced the same combination of feeling dislocated and soothed by the beauty of it all. He took a picture of Luca at an outdoor restaurant table, his blonde hair blowing against the blue, blue sky, and he sent it to Nadia with a caption, the latest wave of Russian immigrants in Nice. Russian immigrants. He wrote, Russian immigrants. You know, I was so angry. I took like five minutes, I smoked a cigarette, and I was like, oh, calm down. And I was like, he's not Russian, I wrote him. And uh, he replied, oh, neither all of us. By this, Karan meant that ethnically, he himself wasn't Russian. And anyway... As they'd already discussed, this whole topic of nationality was messy. And then I had another cigarette and I wrote, no, 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 you're Russian. <laughs> and he's not. And he wrote, whatever. And then I smoked another cigarette and then I said, okay, no, I'm not going to leave it this time. And I wrote him everything. But this time I was like, no, no, let's get it straight. We are Ukrainians. And I was like, now, please let us, you know, be Ukrainians because we want to be Ukrainians and we consider ourselves Ukrainians. And you are not, you're Russian. Everything Nadia had kept bottled up for the last few months, for the last dozen years, came pouring out. And then I felt, no, 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 I can't stop. Now I cannot stop. I have to get it out of my system. Do you have those texts? <laughs> I think yes. Can we look at them? Now? Yes. She pulls up the photo from Nice in her first text. And then I go, I really don't want to fight with you, but I really need to make it clear. And then I said, remember in Moscow, and you were really aggressive about Luca being in Ukrainian school and insisting that he must speak on the great Russian language to read Tolstoy and the greatest Russian culture and all that. And Ukrainian... Um, pathetic agricultural country has no culture and you can't stand that your son grows up in this pathetic place 
and each time after holidays, Luka, who coming with his brainwashed that he's not Ukrainian, and Ukrainian is all bullshit and not his. She brings up the Crimea vacation, the globe. The fucking globe, <laughs> for Crimea. And I was depressed because of this several months. I even had to go a psychologist to talk about it. I asked Karen to read his side of the conversation. She, uh, like, sent me a long message saying, like, we are Ukrainians. We were always uh, Ukrainians and we will always be Ukrainians. Uh, in our uh, home, uh, Russians are killers and uh, it will be so until the war ends. And I was like, okay, but I can recall uh, our first, uh, when we first met with you in Kiev, um, she made jokes of Ukrainian life or Kiev uh, as a city. Um, uh, she was making fun of some little details. And I was like, okay, but remember, uh, it's not just uh, like my own problem with this colonial mindset. You also had it when you just moved. They had profoundly different recollections of some of the conversations they'd had early on in their relationship. Karen remembered Nadia making fun of some aspects of Ukrainian culture. Nadia remembered herself delighting in it. Now Karen was the one who didn't want to fight. He texted back. Each of us have our own path, our own traumas, and our own evolution. Twelve years of my relationship with you is also twelve years of my relationship with Ukraine, with all imperial ideas, internal xenophobia. So, please, don't judge me so harshly. But Nadia couldn't stop. And I can't do anything with this horrible rage. And your son has to live with this mother, which hates all Russian in the world and in herself. So at least, please allow him not to be Russian and not to suffer from this. That's what we heard. Um, and then he's being really sweet. I know what you feel. Blah, blah, blah. To which I answer. Here we have approached the most important part. Maybe you won't believe this, but every day I think about you and how painful this is. I understand how the war and pain cements your Ukrainian patriotism, and I respect that. Your personal history is your own business. I won't tell Luca anything. He'll come to understand everything himself one day. And that's it. Actually, but when I said that would, we were done, I mean, I said everything I always wanted to. Yeah. What does it feel like reading this now? I actually, it's much better than I thought. I, I actually, I thought I was really aggressive because I, I really felt. But it's, um, it's really cool. Cool in what way? What are you seeing? I, I don't regret anything I said, not a word. I didn't lose it. Before all these years, I've been too patient. And that's it. I think he got the point. Uh, it's hard. I mean, 
uh, I couldn't imagine that it would insult her, um, and I regret it. Uh, and it's uh, hard to uh, not just to признавать uh, ошибки. Uh, uh, to admit your mistakes. Admit, uh, yeah. It is not even hard to admit those mistakes. It is even harder to realize that you had those mistakes as your mindset for such a long time. Can you describe the mindset? Uh, mm -hmm. Если ты хочешь переключиться на русский, то, uh, если это проще будет, то uh, должен переключиться. I asked him if he wanted to switch to Russian. Блин, да, это не будет проще. It won't be easier. Okay, either way. Ох, как это тяжело. This is difficult. You know, a lot of what Nadia remembers from this argument, for us, these were simply theoretical conversations about history. But as it turns out, the very things that, that me and others were talking about uh, in this way, in this theoretical manner, they are now used as official reasons to justify the catastrophe, the atrocities. And uh, these are words that you spoke, that came out of your mouth. And now it makes you want to rinse it out with bleach and close it forever. Now Karen asks himself why he had taken these ideas for granted. Even why he, a Greek, Jewish, Armenian, Russian, had never questioned speaking the Russian language. And I, at that time, for the first time in my life, I'm like 41 years old. And this is the first time when I asked myself, what about me? Why... Uh, I don't speak any of those languages and why I always answer that I'm Russian to anybody else and to myself. And also, why had he spent so much time and effort insisting that Nadia and Luca were Russian? Since now it is a burden for him, I'm like, oh no, forget it. <laughs> Just leave it. You don't need it anymore. And... Let's pretend there that you are not Russian at all. If it makes your life easier, you don't need to be. Would you prefer not to be Russian too? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't prefer that. I can't even imagine it. Because this is my country uh, and this is uh, my culture. This is my problem also. This is my drama. Because I don't want to uh, hide my identity. I don't want to try to mm, escape from the responsibility I do have as a Russian person in this war. So let me sum this up a little bit. You were never accepted 
as Russian by Russians. You live in exile. <laughs> the Russian government has declared yeah. you a foreign agent. Yes. <laughs> and you consider yourself Russian. Uh, does it sound like a sort of schizophrenia? <laughs> Karen is a journalist and an LGBTQ activist. Two things the Russian government hates most. That's why he's been designated a foreign agent. Nadia and Karen both felt better after that nice fight. They'd cleared the air. Nadia felt heard. Karen felt like he'd understood something. For one thing, he understood why Nadia said that she and Luca were Ukrainian and how important that was. Their relationship improved. And also, a new Nadia had emerged. One who told people what she really thought. Except when she didn't. Number eight. The fight that wasn't. Nadia comes from a long line of diplomats. Her grandparents were diplomats. And her mother really hoped Nadia would be a diplomat too. Which brings me to Nadia's stepfather, the man who was present for most of Nadia's childhood. Nadia adored him. She calls him dad. She never called Alex that. Long after he and Nadia's mother divorced, they stayed in touch. As Nadia became an adult, they spoke less often, but every time he called, it was like they'd seen each other just yesterday. And he was also a diplomat. In fact, he still is a diplomat, a Russian diplomat who is still working in a high post. And after the war started and they fled to Lisbon and she got Alex out of Ukraine, Nadia was starting to dread her dad's phone call, the call she'd always looked forward to. Her birthday is at the end of May and he always called. This time, she'd have to assume that their conversation was monitored. So if she told him what had been happening for her since the war began, even if all he did was listen, that could get him in trouble. But what if he didn't just listen? What if he said the sort of thing a man in his position is expected to say? Defending the invasion. Justifying it. She was scared he'd say something unforgivable. She was scared she'd say something that would get him in trouble. She was also maybe scared she'd say nothing and regret it. He's quite old, so he'll be retired soon. So he, he's got like a few years left. And he achieved what he was always wanted since he was a child. And, uh, I mean, it's everything he's got. It's really, I know it's important for him. And uh, it's his job. And he t can't do anything else. He has the option of retiring now. I don't know. I, pff, I really... I don't doubt that he's a fantastic person. And um, whatever happens to him, I just hope he's be all right. I just really don't want to hurt him. And um, I feel really sorry for him. And I think he's in a really complicated position. And uh, I think he he's really sorry and he's suffering in a way. He didn't call. I thought this would be a story about how war makes everything black and white. It does. I've seen it. 
and everyone you heard from in this episode has seen it. Long-suppressed disagreements become fights to the death. Fuzzy lines turn into firm boundaries. Nothing is left unsaid. It's true. Most Ukrainians I have interviewed in a year and a half of covering the war have heartbreaking stories about their relationships with family in Russia. But who was I kidding? When are family conflicts ever resolved decisively? When are family stories ever black and white? Nadia, for instance, could have a weeks-long fight with her mom about giving less than $100 to the Russian government. She contemplated throwing her father out of the car for being unable to face the war crimes in Bucha. She flew into a rage in response to the way Karen captioned a photo of Luca. But she wasn't going to say a word to her stepdad, who's actually serving the Russian state? An epilogue. The Russian-Ukrainian war has been going on for more than 500 days. Nadia, Sophie, and Luca are still living in Lisbon. Karen is in Berlin. A few weeks ago, the Russian government added him to its list of extremists and terrorists. This means that he will be arrested if he ever tries to go back to Russia. When the announcement came out, Nadia called him and said, you're one of us now. Alex and Lena, Nadia's father and Sophie's mother, returned to Ukraine after Russian troops were pushed back from Kiev. They fixed up the house and taken the blankets off the windows. They're still very much in love. The cats weathered their absence fine. The rest of this epilogue is going to be about Luca, because most of these fights were about him. Luca turned 12 earlier this year. He wanted to get a Harry Potter cake to bring to school. Then Nadia suggested they get a blue and yellow one instead, the colors of the Ukrainian flag, and he agreed. When Luca heard that I was interviewing his parents, he volunteered to talk to me. But when I asked him about specific conflicts from the past, the Vashavanka fight, the Crimean vacation fight, the globe fight, he drew a blank. Globus. Globus? I mean, I remember it was on one of my birthdays that I was giving a globe, but it was kind of broke. I don't know. I don't remember any globe. The Ukrainian flag cake was Nadia's idea. But Luca has been standing up for the Ukrainian flag in his own way. He plays video games online with other Russian-speaking kids. There is a game there where you have to draw. And there are people there. Some of them draw the Russian flag, and somebody draws the Ukrainian flag. And then at some point in the chat room, they argue why Ukraine is better, why Russia will win, and so on and so forth. I asked him, do you participate in these arguments? If I get a chance, I'm 100%. I'm fighting for Ukraine for real. And now I consider myself 100% Ukrainian. I wouldn't feel comfortable living in the same country as Putin. A year and a half ago, so many things about Luca and his life were contested. Where was he going to go if a war began, and for how long? Who was he? Russian, Ukrainian, both, German. Now he's Ukrainian. But a Ukrainian who plans to live in Germany 
when he grows up. If he has children, he will raise them speaking Ukrainian. He told me, though, that he may need to hire a tutor. Masha Gessen is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of several books, including The Future is History. Naja's story in today's program was produced by Valerie Kipnis and some Russian journalists, Andrei Brzenko and Liko Kramer, the co-founders of the podcast company Libo Libo, which makes podcasts in Russian. This story is a co-production with them, our first, their website, LiboLibo.me. The people who put together today's program include Bim Adalumni, James Bennett II, Zoe Chase, Michael Kamate, Aviva de Kornfeld, Cassie Halley, Seth Lynn, Stone Nelson, Ryan Rummery, Alyssa Ship, Ike Sreese, Kandaraja, Marisa Roberts and Texter, Matt Tierney, Nancy Updike, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Barry. Special thanks today to Misha Galkin and Mark Kipnis, who you heard doing English voiceovers, Piotr Rosavin, Sophie Pasquale, and her mom, Yuliana Vernigora. Jana Mandrikina, and Stefan Steinberg. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. You can stream our archive of over 800 episodes for absolutely free. Also, we have on there now new merch, including genuinely wonderful Tory Mala t-shirts. Take a look, you'll see what I'm talking about. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Special thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tory Malatia. He told me recently, that's it. No more pasta. No more rewatching The Godfather. No more Gabagool. No, no, no. I'm German. I'm definitely German. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. <laughs> <laughs>